Hello, and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney. The podcast that navigates Sydney's history like what contench peregrinating along the Hawkesbury Nepean. <laughs> I'm Alistair. And I'm Jed. And uh, each week one of us tells the other a story from Sydney's uh, wide and varied history. Though in this season we've been focusing on Aboriginal stories and in the first few episodes, uh, particularly on what we now call the Hawkesbury Nepean. Last week, Jed, it was me who told the story. Do you remember anything about it? Yes, it was about a, a cave that we are not to visit near the Napston Viaduct. Um, and it was really a, more broadly about the river stones of Jarabin, um, which is the river that the Darug refer to as Jarabin, we refer to as the Hawkesbury Nepean, um, and some of the indigenous uses of those river stones and why they're special and how they link different parts of, of New South Wales together. Yeah, very well done. Always a great summary from you. Um, and you also let me know that there was a, a clue for this week's story, which was about, I think, a significant family along this stretch of the river. Um, yep. I thought at the time, great, I will ponder this for a few weeks and I'll have a cracking answer. And in the meantime, it's just been sleep deprivation and a a myriad of distractions, so I have absolutely nothing to offer. I believe there was some governor or something who uh, granted his family members very large tracts of land in Castlereagh. Uh, that's my only attempt to uh, to a guess. So my clue was that it would this episode will be about a Western Sydney dynasty that you may not have heard of, but clues to their significance to the history of the West are scattered liberally around the Cumberland Plain and the Hawkesbury Nepean. And, Alistair, the main piece of the clue was that one member of the family featured in Tench's diary from my last episode. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a good clue. So, it's actually a story about an important Darug family that built strong connections across several generations with the European colonists as they were rapidly expanding into their territory. Very good. All right. I'm, I'm ready to hear. I'm, I'm interested. Okay, so before we kick off, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which I'm recording this episode, which is the Kootenai people of Interior BC, and also especially the Darug people, who feature very prominently in the episode. And I would like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation uh, upon whose land I am recording. Okay, so we're going to start with the patriarch of the family. And that's a man who the British considered to be one of the leaders of the Darug in, um, in the 18th century. Now, I've got no doubt that Darug interpersonal relationships and hierarchy structures are much more complicated than mm. the Brits gave them credit for. Yes, this is a classic recurring story. The Brits always <laughs> yes. want to like, identify a king or, or something. Like, I don't understand. There is There's lots of be that in this episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so their invasion required reimagining Aboriginal society in the image of European society. Mm. So the man that we know today is Yaramundi or Yellowmundi, as Tench recorded his name, um, was considered to by the Brits to be a or possibly the leader of the Darug people. Okay, great. No wonder you knew so much about uh, Yaramundi. You pulled me oh, up yeah. with a couple of corrections <laughs> in the last episode. I didn't, <laughs> didn't want to give too much away. So I'm going to be talking about the Darug quite a lot. I thought I'd do a very brief background. Um, 
we've yeah, mentioned wonderful. them so many times, but yeah. we've never kind of actually done a little little paragraph on them. So the Tyndale project, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Mm-hmm. So this is the language mapping, is that right? Yes, yes. The, the, the famous language map of Aboriginal nations of Australia um, and the Darug people cover what is now broadly Western Sydney. So bounded by the, um, the lands of the Eora language, which is, as we discussed the other episode, is sort of dialectically similar um, in what is now Sydney. And we know from Tench's diary that Parramatta was also part of the Eora group. The Darkanyung and Kurungai people to the north, uh, the Gundungara people to the south, um, and the less inhabited Blue Mountains to the west, and then the Wiradjuri people west of that. So mm-hmm. in the first season, second season, I think, in the episode um, From the Valley to the Gully, uh, we discussed some of that Aboriginal interaction in the Blue Mountains and how it wasn't an area that has like a sort of constant um, inhabitation, but was a sort of trade route and um, I guess a place where different language groups and people interfaced, particularly the Gundungara, Darug and Wiradjuri people. Yeah. So that was what was going on west of Darug land in the Blue Mountains. Yeah. Unsurprisingly, given how early in the history of um, British Australia the Darug people were encountered, quite a few words that we use in English for Australian flora and fauna are taken from Darug. Wonderful. Do you know any, Alistair? Uh, No, I was going to say, I'm looking forward to hearing them. Uh, No? What about emu? Uh Uh-huh. No. Uh, well, I shouldn't say no. It's just not on my list. Not on your list, yeah. I don't know. I was just thinking, <laughs> yeah. there's emu planes is there. There are probably some emus. Yeah, well, that's uh, a great guess. And that's why I had to sort of retract. Like, actually... I mean, look, I'm probably wrong, but <laughs> um, I don't look, know. Look, it's a I shame you went for that one. Because if you had have gone for any of the others, it, you would have been correct. Well, because... it's not kangaroo because that's one of the, uh, like, somewhere way up in Queensland, mm. I think, that Captain Cook came across something. Um, we're talking animals. What? Wombat? Wombat, yes. Oh, yes. Very good. Koala. Uh, dingo as well. Uh, Karajong and Waratah. Okay, great. Beautiful, oh, yeah, beautiful Waratahs, uh, kind of as you go into the mountains. Mm-hmm. So the primary cultural difference between the Darug people and the Yora people that the Europeans had already encountered was their diet. Um, obviously, the coastal people eating a lot of seafood and the mm. inland river people relying more on emu hunting, kangaroo, and the aforementioned yams that were abundant along Jarabin. Yes, and I don't know if you uh, have a bit in your notes here, but the use of the that fish hook in the Eora lands, uh, I think, was quite important for catching fish, and that was not used, I believe, by the Darug. Okay, definitely not in my notes. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I had some notes about this that I wasn't able to get into our last episode, but the um, the fish hook made of shell that was very prominent around the harbour um, was called the bara, and this was a relatively speaking new innovation uh, in the coastal areas of Sydney. I think they'd only used it for, mm-hmm. well, for a very long time, but 1,000 to 500 years ago was when it kind of start, came yeah. into prominent use, and it was a significant innovation. Um, allowed women to go further out into the harbour with canoes and into deeper waters to fish. And these have not, I believe, been found in inland sites uh, of the Darug people. So, that, yeah, that's that's a, a significant difference in their diets, I guess. And I think there's a, a large statue of a borough in the um, new development um, in Sydney. 
oh what's the where the the massive casino is barangaroo in the in the uh, barangaroo <laughs> development they've put up a a larger statue of a borough cool yes okay awesome yeah always remarkable how much difference there is between the two people given that areas that we now consider to be so close yeah okay so Yaramundi was an elder of the Baruburongal clan mm-hmm. and was considered by the British to be the chief of the Richmond tribes. Okay. That sounds more like their kind of their way of thinking of things. <laughs> yeah, yeah. His first recorded encounter with the British, uh, you will recall from Tench's April 1791 diary. Yes. Is this um, the encounter that involved uh, some kind of almost magical ritual? Yes, it was. So that was Yaramundi who performed that. So I won't go into it here again. You can hear it in Tench's words from the episode a month ago. But Yaramundi was considered to be a doctor, possibly from a tribe of doctors. Once again, though, that's how Tench saw it. It's really hard to read that scene, as you noted at the time, and know if someone's making fun or if it's, you know, serious or anything, really. But um, that was the first encounter between Yaramundi and the British. Tench also noted that Yaramundi was scarred by smallpox, which we discussed was significant because it means that smallpox got out there, courtesy of the British, before they actually did. Yeah. And we actually don't know a lot more about Yaramundi than this early encounter with Tench. I tried to find out some more about him um, and in the process came across a reasonably good ABC Radio National podcast from 2021 oh, cool. about Yaramundi and Yarabin. It's like a sort of 30-minute Fairly superficial, but but interesting. And it tells some of the stories of the river from contemporary Aboriginal perspectives and sets those stories from the early years of the colony in a bit more of a broader historical context. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's it was good. It's I've got, I've got one, one major criticism of it, which I'll get to in a sec, but it's still worth a listen. It's from a podcast series called The History Listen, and it's the episode from the 5th of July, 2021, called Yaramundi and the People of the Yarabin. <clears throat> but this this one story, uh, the speaker claimed that it's our last recorded encounter with Yaramundi was at a great corroboree on the banks of the Nepean in 1835. Mm-hmm. Given that our knowledge of Yaramundi is, is fairly limited, Wikipedia states his his uh, death <laughs> as after 1818. <laughs> okay, could be after 1835 as well. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I'll I'll have a dig. So I had a dig to try and find anything I could about this great corroboree from 1835. Yeah. And I think what the podcast based that story on is an article in a briefly published Sydney tabloid newspaper called The Colonist. Okay. Dated from April 9th, 1835. And it describes a sort of Indigenous-led like review-style performance titled Grand Corroboree. Uh And I'll, I'll quote from the newspaper here. The native dance and the native song was particularly enlivening. Where all were so deserving of notice, it would be unfair to mention individuals, but we cannot help noticing the following, with whose appropriate costume and well-sustained characters we were particularly struck. Yelamundi and Jibinwi with their gins from the Hawkesbury. The former of these chiefs was in the character of a native mourner, his body being pipe clayed all over. He was perhaps mourning for the loss of his hunting grounds and the independence of his nation. 
the unfortunate but unavoidable consequence of European colonization. He made an appropriate speech on the subject, but all of it we could collect was, white fellows sit down all about black fellow Murray miserable. Okay. Now, I read this a few times and I re-listened to the podcast and I don't know what your thoughts on that, but the whole thing reads as like vaguely ridiculous to me, um, which isn't super uncommon for 19th century journalism. Yeah. But I did discover that in this case, that's because it's actually intended to be. Mm-hmm. So researchers at the University of Sydney declared the article to be, quote, probably not a serious account of an actual Indigenous corroboree, but rather a satire on a fancy ball for white settler gentry held by John Jamison at Regentville. Okay. I'm very confused at this point about what's going on here. So the, the thinking is that this is a like satirical performance that doesn't involve actual Aboriginal people performing or does, but they're playing characters? So... I think that the Radio National podcast, in looking for some stories about Yaramundi, probably got to the same point where they couldn't find any except for this one reference from this news article. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, it's basically a fake news article um, that's covering a fancy dress ball held by the sort of Cumberland Plain aristocracy. And it's clearly at the expense of the Aboriginal people. Okay, yeah. It's sad in a way because, I mean, it's sad because they're making fun of um, the displacement of this group of people. But it's also, I feel like, a bit sad that a contemporary podcast charting Aboriginal stories has grabbed onto it as, like, a significant reference and to an important figure and then perpetuated it further. But it is really hard. To, uh, you can understand very easily how it happens because it is very hard to find source material for a lot of these stories. And so if you find anything, you like, great, I finally got something that mentions this person that I, I'm trying to research. Yeah, it was good for me that the University of Sydney had like directly dispelled it because otherwise I feel like I would have fallen into some like he said, she said trap. Yes, been totally unsure. Have some academics who've looked into it further. But so the reason I recite all of that is mainly to say that if you do find other references to Yaramundi out there, aside from the Tench one, uh, maybe it's worth having a degree of suspicion about their validity. Okay, so really we don't we don't know very much at all about his lifetime, well, apart from this one account from Tench. Yes. And the fact that he was significant enough that an article in 1835 would mention him by name as a stand-in for Indigenous people in the Jarabin area. Yes, exactly. So his son, Colby, quickly became an even more influential Darug figure in the early colonial history of Sydney than his father. Mm-hmm. Now, to, to add to the general confusion There's of telling this family Colby's. story, yes, yeah. yes, there are. <laughs> Come across this problem before. Well, not problem, <laughs> but the confusion, yeah. Yeah. So you, you might recall Colby from Tench's Journals, now, that is not the same Colby. That is what I guess we could call the Eora Colby. Mm-hmm. And he came out with Tench to explore the Hawkesbury Nepean. And then we've also got Yaramandi's son, which is, you could perhaps say, Darug Colby. And that's mm-hmm. who I'm going to be referring to from here on in. Okay. The other thing that's tricky about the whole thing is that other people have clearly made that mistake 
when researching Colby. So there's all these sort of like fairly simple websites like Dictionary of Sydney and the like that talk about one Colby and misattribute the actions of the other Colby to him. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Easy mistake to make, but yes. Um, But then it always gives you a a lot of pause when you're trying to write an episode, right? Because you're like, can I trust this at all? Should I add this story? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So what we know about Colby, Darren Colby, who we're going to be talking about now, is that he assisted William Cox with the construction of his eponymous road across the Blue Mountains. Okay. Which you'll recall from season one, Alistair. Oh, you love a road across the Blue Mountains. I know it well. (laughs) Not to be confused with the Bells line of road. Exactly. So Cox referred to him as Coley in his fairly brief diary entries on the subject. And after the road was completed in 1815... Cox, who we're going to talk about for a second here, was given a land grant of 2,000 acres near Bathurst, and then he returned back to the Sydney Basin into a position as magistrate in the Hawkesbury region. Okay. So at that time, Cox was residing at a place called Fernhill Estate near near Mulgoa Uh in a home that was extended substantially by his progeny over time, but is home to a heritage-listed building dating from 1810, believed to be Australia's oldest weatherboard cottage. Very nice. Only a few years older than a Hadley Hadley Park cottage. So, aside from his famous road-building exploits, there's a darker side, as you probably might expect, to the Cox story, which I actually didn't know when I was talking about his road. A darker side to a man who acquired enormous tracts of land and huge power in early <laughs> colonial Sydney? Yeah. Impossible. Yeah. Um, in May 1814, just two months before he left on his road building jaunt, his name featured in the Sydney Gazette thusly. The mountain natives have lately become troublesome to the occupiers of remote grounds. Mr. Cox's people at Malgoa have been several times attacked within the last month and compelled to defend themselves with their muskets. Yeah, okay, because these are these are large uh, land grants with um, that that are kind of scattered right on the frontier, as we were talking about uh, in the last episode of the colonial settlement, and so they're really contested land. Yeah, and while Cox is away, being the magistrate um, up near Windsor, he's got you know, people, either convicts or perhaps ex-convicts managing his, his property for him. But these people are quite isolated, really. They're on in small weatherboard cottages, possibly near the banks of the Hawkesbury Nepean and quite far from the next nearby property. And they were a source of a lot of tension in the coming years, which we'll sort of touch on briefly. Yeah. After building the road, Cox returned to Fernhill Estate in 1815. And in 1816, those frontier wars which were largely with the Darug, but also with the Gundungurra and Wiradjuri people, started to heat up. So that era that we were talking about um, when Tench was out there is sort of well and truly over by this point. A lot of people have moved into the area, a lot of Europeans, and there's no longer really space for both groups to behave as they would see fit. Yeah. Skirmishes were common, as well as raids by all sides, and the zenith of the confrontation is the Appen Massacre that took place in April 1816 at the order of Governor Macquarie. Yes, I have heard about this, uh, reading about it. I can't uh, recall the exact details, so I look forward to hearing them from you. 
So the Appen massacre is the most well-publicized incident uh, that was part of a larger plan by the governor to end the frontier wars in the Nepean and surrounds. And end it with brute force, right? Yes. So it, the, to very roughly, the Appen massacre idea was to basically funnel a group of Indigenous people into a specific area, uh, Appen Gorge, and kill them all, and then use that as a sort of symbol to others to not mess with the colonial regime. But the broader plan, um, which involved Cox, given that he was the magistrate at the uh, up in Windsor at the time, was to send out parties across the district and flush out the last of the resistance. Right, because previously you have a lot of kind of uh, tit-for-tat um, smaller skirmishes and incidents of violence. Um, I think with government uh, policy being um, rather vague or um, somewhat officially uh, pacifist, but then uh, Macquarie gets to a point where he de- he, he decides to, to go for a fully aggressive exterminatory approach, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. And so aside from Appen, what's interesting in the reporting um, of the results of this sort of military action, there's not really any publicized fatalities. So Appen obviously was really significant, but otherwise it seems like, and this refer- sort of gets back to that pacifist agenda you mentioned, they don't brag about Indigenous casualties or the success of their mission. But what we do find is that after this sort of 1816 offensive, a lot of people are commenting on the absence of Indigenous people in the region after this point. Mm-hmm. And Macquarie also seems to be very pleased with the outcome, even if he's not specific about what that was. Right. And he generously lavishes awards and praise on those that assisted. Yeah, yes. I think there's definitely a lot of um, a lot of violence going on that's just not officially recognised and that's kind of unofficially condoned. And so this is where we get back to Colby because two of the men that Macquarie lavished this praise on were Darug men mm-hmm. and one of them was Colby. Who were assisting in these, these kind of violent missions. Yeah. So in his May 25th, 1816 diary entry, Macquarie wrote, On this occasion... I invested Naragingi, alias Creek Jemmy, with my order of merit by presenting him with a handsome brass gorget or breastplate, having his name inscribed thereon in full as chief of the South Creek tribe. I also promised him and his friend Colby a grant of 30 acres of land on the South Creek between them as an additional reward for their fidelity to government and their recent good conduct. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a a fairly common story of across across history, right? You 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 have uh, people who are caught in a really difficult situation, and you have to decide whether you're going to cooperate um, with the obviously superior military power mm. um, to to navigate the, the situation, or or be part of the resistance to that that is ultimately futile. Also, very interesting with the breastplates. I don't know how much <laughs> uh, you have about breastplates, but. <laughs> They're, We're not going to the breastplate, so please tell me all. I don't know much about them either, but they they seem to be a huge part of early, and actually I think they go for a while, uh, colonial expansion and um, relations with Aboriginal people. That, that It would be fascinating to learn more about them or do an episode on. I kind of wonder if they were like requested or if the British were just like, you want this. Yeah. You know? 
it was almost a way of forcing upon Aboriginal people uh, uh, the, that form of uh, social structure that they were hoping to uh, interact with. So, mm. you know, declaring people kings or leaders or um, chiefs and giving them these breastplates. Um, but I think it's quite quite a widespread pa- practice. Yeah, I've come across it before as well. Yeah, I think what's so interesting about this this land grant and presentation is it's important to say that this is the first official land grant from the colonial regime to the indigenous inhabitants of the land that they were in the process of invading. Okay. And I think it's so remarkable that happens in such a controversial way, you know, that it's a land grant for helping them displace different group of indigenous people from nearby land. Right. And associated with a, with a very significant massacre. Is this directly tied to the Appen massacre? Do you say? It's, it's hard to say. It's all part of the same military offensive okay. that was playing out in early 1816. The Appen massacre is just the most well-known of those events. And it's the one where there's no doubt, where sort of we have specific numbers of how many people were killed and how it played out. Okay. Whereas the rest of this offensive was sort of a bit mysterious. And the only reason we really know what happened is because it was alluded to beforehand. And then afterwards, everyone's going, there doesn't seem to be any Indigenous people here anymore. What, you know, okay. what's happened? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, and where whereabouts is the this land grant, did you say? I think you mentioned it, but I missed it. Uh, he, so he describes it as on the South Creek. Um, And so we're about to get into the land grant now. Wonderful. South Creek is vaguely near Windsor, is that right? Yeah, it sort of comes up from near Blacktown and heads north to the Hawkesbury Dependent. It's one of the creeks that Tench struggled about. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So the grant was registered in 1819, but was only registered in Colby's name. Colby did not stay long on the grant, but Naragingi stayed there growing various crops and practicing animal husbandry. The location of the land grant was significant because it was an Aboriginal choice being on land belonging to Naragingi's clan. The area became a center of Aboriginal life during this early phase of colonization. Yeah, interesting. And that is a quote from the New South Wales State Heritage Register. The Colby and Naragingi land grant, as it is known, was registered as of state significance in 2012. Okay, I'm sure you're going to get to it, but I'm wondering what's on that land right now. Yeah, well, it's a <laughs> you might not be surprised to find out that it's a sad story. Yeah. So this piece of the State Heritage Register quote about the land grant I thought was interesting. They said... The land grant is valued by the contemporary Aboriginal community and the wider Australian community as a landmark in the history of cross-cultural engagement in Australia. For Aboriginal people in particular, it represents a key historical site symbolising Aboriginal resilience and enduring links to the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, it's an interesting case of country that is the, the country of those people being officially granted to them under the british colonial system of land uh, division yeah and i think it's probably fairly unique in that regard i mean obviously like since the 90s there's been a lot more returning of land to traditional owners but this is a really really early example of it and obviously it's very problematic but i think it's also quite unique and interesting mm-hmm. and the state register people obviously agreed 
to some extent, uh, because <laughs> we'll get now to uh, what has happened to it to the land, since, since, given that yeah. Sydney has grown uh, exponentially since 1819. Um, the land grants somewhere that I'm moderately familiar with, but I suspect that you are not, being would, Richmond Road. Yeah, I would almost guarantee I'm not. Uh-huh. So it's on Richmond Road. Uh near Marsden Park, just west of where the M7 flies over Richmond Road. And since 1987, the suburb it is in has officially been known as Colby. Oh, okay. There you go. That would have been a good clue. <laughs> well, it wouldn't have. If I knew enough have. about the names <laughs> of suburbs in that area, which I do not. <laughs> right. Um, so the original land grant was for 30 acres, but it was added to and later subdivided, which we'll get to. Um, and then since then, bits and pieces have been chipped away at. In 2003 and 2006, the RTA acquired the front strip of the site for the widening of Richmond Road. Mm-hmm. And then, as best I can tell, beginning construction in 2013, the like northern third of the site and a, a big block of land north of that was turned into a huge housing estate, mm-hmm. which I find really strange because that's a year after it was added to the Heritage Register. So I can only presume that all the approvals were done and that was kind of a, a done deal yeah. prior and- to it being made state significant and no one was going to actually change that. Or that might have been the impetus for getting that regi- uh, Heritage Register to stop any further uh, use of that land yeah. kind of thing. Yeah. So what's left of the site is about 15 acres that's um, that's sort of still rural in nature. And what's quite funny is that this is the description of the site from the state register, which I presume was written in 2012. Mm-hmm. The site of the Colby Nuragingi land grant is today predominantly undeveloped rural land. The land grant is bounded by Richmond Road along its western side and is surrounded by rural land parcels to the east and south. Immediately north of the site is an industrial complex. The subject site retains a rural character, although some residences have been constructed along the Richmond Road frontage. The land grant is bisected by Bells Creek, which runs in a northeasterly direction. The site retains remnant vegetation across its eastern half and along Bells Creek, while clearing has had a greater effect across the western half of the property towards Richmond Road. So... Yeah, to me, it's interesting that that's like an official description of the site mm-hmm. when in actual fact, half of what they've just described is a housing estate. <laughs> Was that the industrial parts of the north? No, that's the, that's the previous land use. Like because this was written when it became got added to the Heritage Register, it reflects what it was like ah, right. for about six months in 2012. But since yeah, before for, okay. for the vast majority of the time it's been Heritage Registered, half of what is heritage listed is just asphalt and single occupancy dwellings Mm. classic single occupancy dwellings hey and uh there's a currently a proposed freeway uh called the castle ray freeway and it should that ever be built that will go straight through the site as well um which leads me to wonder what on earth is the point of listing listing something as state significance if we can't protect it from even the most basic kinds of development pressure Yep, sounds like there's not going to be very much left uh, of this site. It would be really nice to stand under a freeway flyover looking at someone's back fence thinking, ah, yes, the Colby and Narragingi land grant. 
Yeah, that's that's how New South Wales uh, development priorities, I guess. Yeah, but had you have gone there in 2012, it would have been a very different story. Yeah, okay. And w- would there be um, any signs of the the hundreds of years of history there? I mean, I think you would find some... Uh, maybe if you were archaeologically minded, you could find some evidence of sort of where dwellings used to be or something mm-hmm. like that. But I think that it's going to resemble a typical rural landscape in the sense that there's some contemporary dwellings some sort of mid-century dwellings and going back further and further you might get to remnants of of some of the earliest structures yeah but nothing i guess that demonstrates its particular significance re the land grant yeah okay so this brings us to the next of yaramandi's kin that i'm uh going to cover in a story that i'm attempting to keep vaguely chronological (laughs) you're doing pretty well (laughs) Yeah, Yaramundi's daughter uh, and Colby's sister, Maria, was born in 1808 and she comes to our attention in 1814 when she was enrolled in the newly opened Parramatta Native Institute. Okay, I think that I was hoping that you'd talk about this if this is the institute that I'm thinking of. Is this kind of an early precursor to the stolen generation that gets shut down a few years later? Yes. Yes, yes. it is. Oh, <laughs> uh, excellent. Tell me more. One one very good way to put it. And you also mentioned Macquarie's um, sort of pacifist approach, generally speaking. Obviously, the Happen Massacre was way out of line of that. But there was an official notion in 1809 towards the Indigenous people, which was conciliation. Yeah. When, yeah. When I say pacifist, I just want to make it clear that that was the official party line. I, that, I think that was a way of keeping <laughs> your hands clean while uh, completely uncontrolled violence took place. But yeah, the, I think the, yeah. the official party line was a, a, a non-violent conciliation, as you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, which I found kind of interesting that that's an officially used word. When Macquarie was declared governor in 1809, it specifically mentioned conciliation towards the Aboriginal people because my sort of encounter with the word was when the Australian government's official policy circa 2000 was reconciliation. Reconciliation, yeah. And I never realised it had that sort of direct connection to an earlier policy. Yeah, it doesn't sound so uplifting when you put it that way, does it? When like, we're going back to the Macquarie days, that's when we had good Aboriginal yeah. relations. And I think, no, it is no longer official policy. I think they've opted for something um, <laughs> something different. Again, maybe with less historical links. But Macquarie, uh, to put it bluntly, um, it, it proved tricky to live up to his goal of conciliation, given that the displacement of Darug people from their traditional lands along the banks of Yarrabin was also a really important part of the nation-building program that was going on at the same time. Yeah. So one way he attempted to address this conflict was to found a native institution that would educate displaced Aboriginal children in the British fashion, which is basically teach them English, British culture, and ideally train them into a useful life of domestic service or trade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, make them wear the, the clothes and stand with the, the right <laughs> you've, posture. You've seen the like photos. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Probably not of this particular one, but yes, it's a yes. general missionary principle. The idea came to Macquarie's year 
by the courtesy of your average dubious early colonial figure, a man called William Shelley. Mm -hmm. He was a highly religious man, and his greatest claim to fame, aside from being the first principal of Macquarie's Native Institute, was when he set out from Sydney on a trade expedition bound for the South Pacific. Mm -hmm. He's had his ship raided by the people of one of those islands. He lost three crew in the process, but he managed to return to Sydney with what he described as, quote, a large cargo of shells and as large a quantity of pearls as has ever yet been procured by a single vessel. Well, there you go. Lost a few lives in the conflict, but got a lot of pearls. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, I also love that it's just a trade voyage. That's yeah. like, this uh, is <laughs> so dubious. Interesting form of trade you're engaging in there. <laughs> yeah. This sounds like the man we need to take control of, uh, you know, the delicate task of Aboriginal relations, I'd say. <laughs> exactly. So at the opening of the new school, Macquarie informed the parents of the students that had been enrolled that they would not be allowed to remove their children from the school, but they were welcome to come and visit on the school's annual open day. Yeah, yeah. So this is what I remember about this story. It's like, it's as close to forced removal of children as you can get while kind of couching it in the language of voluntary uh, enrollment. Yeah, yes, but what I also found fascinating is that basic, like, basically no one ever attends the school. Yes, there's a, there's a massive forced removal component, but it's not like it's being done on a sort of industrial or policed scale. Yes. I think it's done more on a diplomatic scale almost. Like yes. If you want yes. to be kind of in good relations with the government, you need to send your children here. And only a few people with enough prominent links to government kind of get strong-armed into it that there's only yeah, a few kids exactly. there. Yeah, exactly. So, Maria Yaramundi's daughter was one of the four initial students at the new school, and the school was in a building next to St. John's Church, which is now, like, right in the heart of downtown Parramatta. Oh, okay, well, wow. Okay, so we know exactly where it is, and it's in the middle of downtown Parramatta. Yeah, the church has been demolished, but it's still a, it's a cathedral now, St. John's Cathedral. Mm -hmm. And apparently, Maria was quite the student. This passage from the Sydney Gazette, dated April 17, 1819, uh, is nameless, but it's been attributed to her that's being discussed. On Tuesday last, an anniversary school examination took place at Parramatta, at which the children of the native institution were introduced, their numbers not exceeding 20. Those of the schools of the children of Europeans amounting nearly to 100. Prizes were prepared for distribution among such of the children as should be found to excel in the early rudiments of education, moral and religious, and it is not less strange than pleasing to remark in answer to an erroneous opinion which has long prevailed with many, namely that the Aborigines of this country were insusceptible to any mental improvement which could adapt them to the purposes of civilised association, that a black girl of 14 years of age between three and four years in the school, bore away the chief prize with much satisfaction to their worthy at judges and auditors. Ah, uh, yes, the classic abuse through faint praise of singular figures who buck the trend of uh, abuse of all the other people of that type. Yeah, that's, that also, that whole passage was two sentences. 
but yeah, so that's sort of, I think that gives you a bit of an insight into the agenda of the school and what it might have been like. Yeah. And the mindset of the time, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I won't go on about the school for too much longer, uh, but it does seem that it never had an enrollment greater than 20. Yeah. And it suffered substantially from an inability to attract children to the school, uh, pupils objecting to the conditions of the school and running away, and parents removing their kids from the school. Yeah, yeah. I think it was it. It was closed relatively quickly, right? Um, and it's a yeah, a very telling case that you know, Aboriginal cultures and family ties are obviously much stronger than the desire to send your kid off where you can only see them once a year to go and be taught how to you know, stand up in a different way and wear different clothes. Um, so yeah, I, I, there was very, very little uptake uh, on, on yeah. the part of Aboriginal families of having their children leave to go to this institute. Yeah. So it opened in 1814. In 1823, the school relocated from Parramatta to what was known as the Black Town, mm-hmm. being the area immediately surrounding the Colby and Narragingi land grant because a small community had developed there of Darug people and also other indigenous, indigenous people that had been displaced or had chosen to relocate to the fringe of the colony. Yes, okay. And this is not what we currently call Blacktown, right? No, it's not too far. Mm-hmm. Richmond Road goes from Blacktown to Richmond through this area. Yeah, but it is a slightly different thing. It's a slightly different place, but the the name is continuing from this area like the reason okay. why blacktown is called blacktown is because this area was known as the blacktown okay that's uh, good to know i suspect the construction of the railway line might have something to do with the relocation of blacktown but i don't know right okay so almost like you where you would name we've built a new train line we've got a state we're going to put a station here seems like a good place for a settlement and what should we call it oh well it's kind of close to to that area where a lot of aboriginal people are that we call blacktown so we'll call the station and the town that surrounds it Blacktown. Yeah, I suspect that's roughly how it went. Yeah. Um, so the school struggled on for a few more years and then it closed finally in 1829. Yeah. In 1833, the land it occupied up across the road from the Colby and Narragingi land grant was sold off and it passed through a series of landowners and farmers' hands before it was purchased by Landcom, a developer, in the 1980s. And the surrounding suburb of Hassel Grove was developed. Mm-hmm. But the sort of smaller school site itself is actually still sitting there vacant. Um, mm. And it's surrounded by a chain link fence and under a heritage order. So you can still okay. actually see that site. That seems like a very significant site. I feel like that's very telling about that the impetus to remove Aboriginal children and try to remove Abog- Aboriginal culture is there right from the very start and continues through. That seems like a really important place to create some kind of museum or ability to go and reflect and and see some information about this institution. Yeah. And the suburbs that are adjacent to that, like Hassel Grove is sort of part of the, the Mount Druitt suburbs. And these are areas that have a higher indigenous population than broader Sydney has to have huge issues with social disadvantage. So there's like a there's a total continuity in this area that can tell us a lot, I think, about the relationship between the Darug people and the colonial government and and Australian government and Australian yeah. society more broadly that this place sort of captures. But 
as you might expect, being an, a testament to that relationship, it's totally neglected. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Right. So it's just it's an abandoned site with a chain link fence around it. Yeah. 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 No, that's yeah. That's interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I'm enjoying this episode, Jed. Very interesting. So Maria's story continues after the closing of the school she attended. Yeah, where she was the star pupil, right? She was the star. In 1824, yeah. so that's one year after the school's moved to Blacktown, she's 16, and she married a convict from England named Robert Locke. Now, another interesting thing about Maria and her role in sort of I guess, bridging the gap or creating a new uh, indigenous slash colonial identity was that her marriage to, to Robert was the first formally approved marriage in the colony between an Aboriginal person and a European. Okay. And it took place at the aforementioned St. John's Church in Parramatta. Okay. And this would have been as a consequence of the fact that she was this star pupil who was in some ways assimilated into British culture and, and lifestyle. Yeah, exactly. And what's, I think, even more interesting is that because he's a convict, when they got married, he was formally assigned to Maria as her convict. So you might Uh, know that's a kind of fairly common arrangement. Yes. But it's remarkable to me that we had a situation where, you know, it's it's only 30 years or so after the founding of the colony and convicts are being, in this instance, very specific instance, being assigned to an Indigenous person. Yeah, legally speaking, uh, that, was, yeah. that was her convict, yeah. But this, we do know this kind of thing happened all the time with married couples, right? Yes, yeah. Quite a common scenario. So the next development in the, in the family's history is that the Macquarie land grant to Colby and Narragingi was only registered in Colby's name. So despite the fact that Narragingi spent more time living there, upon Colby's death in 1831, Maria petitioned Governor Darling that the land should pass to her. Okay. There's a lot about this, and I didn't bother going into it. Suffice to say, it was an extremely protracted process that seemed to involve Governor Darling offering Maria land grants elsewhere. Mm-hmm. in lieu of the site, but in 1843, so 12 years after Colby's death, she was successful and was granted that original 30 acres of land. Okay. And do we know anything about what happened to Narragingi? Because from your early account, she was the actual one doing the hard husbandry work and maintaining the farm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, I could, I like... I, yeah. I wonder how much there's some sort of tension between the more integrated into the colonial life yeah. couple, being Maria and Robert, tension between them and, you know, Narragingi and their family who are living on this land, as it turns out, unofficially. Yeah. The yeah. land technically belonging to Colby. I mean, the like, I think that's why I kind of left the whole thing there because it seems so potentially um conflicting and yeah and yeah. fraught and a 12 year yeah. legal struggle yeah is gonna yeah it's always hard to yeah come. trying to commentate on it i feel like yeah commentating on a 12 year legal struggle from the 1830s i was just like <laughs> i don't need this in my episode okay <laughs> agreed <laughs> all right so uh maria and her husband have have this land right yes so maria robert and their 10 children move out to the site Ten children, okay. Just the ten. And they were granted another 30 acres of land there uh, that had been part of the Native Institute site. 
Right, which we said moved uh, to be next to it. Okay. Maria dies in 1878, and the 60 acres of land was split among her nine remaining children. Mm -hmm. And the Locke family, which is Maria and Robert's family, remain on the site until about 1917, when the relatively newly created Aboriginal Protection Board acquire the land and then... After World War Two, sell it off. Okay. So once again, I'm not going deep into this, but basically the Aboriginal Protection Board is the organization that is responsible for and perpetrated the stolen generation. Yeah. It seems what's happening on this site is that they took control of the land, sold it and displaced the people that had lived there. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, as some of this stuff was coming to light and policy was changing in the 1970s, Walter Locke, a direct descendant of Maria's, attempted yeah. to claim the land back, but he was okay. told that he wasn't able to because it hadn't been continually occupied. Yeah, well. Right, so really this patch of land that you started the episode with, I was kind of, kind of wondering where it was going. You were talking about the development that's going to, you know, go over it and it's already started to eat away at it. Like, you can tell the history of Aboriginal uh, relations, like, just with this piece of land almost. Certainly, Darug relations, I think, is, like, it really captures a lot of what went on in Western Sydney. Yeah, well. And, yeah, even the fact that it's being turned into housing subdivisions for profit at the exclusion of the people who were granted the land. Like, we're not talking about just the sort of notion of Indigenous occupancy. We're talking about colonial land regimes and and ongoing title, you know. The land was confiscated from in 1917 to do with a policy that we now make large-scale political apologies about. Yeah. But when it gets down to brass tacks, the land still belongs to the people it was sold to, you know. Yeah. So... As we learned from Tench's diary in our first episode of the season, in the 18th century, the Darug people were a highly visible part of the landscape of Western Sydney. The land grants, the successive native institutes, and some news stories indicate that through the 19th century, they continued to be a part of the fabric there. But uh, with the establishment of the Aboriginal Protection Board in the 1890s, the main years of the Stolen Generation began, and by the 1930s, mention of Darrow people had faded out from the newspapers and public consciousness, which is also around the time that the archaeological interest you were describing last episode came into play. Mm-hmm. Which ties in nicely, right? Because at the time you were saying, like, well, what do you mean this person was like fascinated by picking up these artifacts but had no interest in Aboriginal culture? But it's exactly at the time when like, they're almost turning off that part of their brain and pretending that it doesn't exist anymore. Yeah, and so the people that lived on the land moved away and, you know, these are this is a mixed-race family we're talking about. So I think mm-hmm. it's quite a common story is people chose to hide their Indigenous identity for fear of the consequences. Yeah, and we're encouraged to do so by government policy, right? Yeah. Yeah, the Sackville Reach Aboriginal Reserve that we mentioned as well, Alistair, I think we've mentioned it three episodes in a row now. You know, that's another sort of landmark from this time. And as you mentioned from the memorial there, by mid-century, wider white Australian society really viewed the Darug as an extinct race, Mm -hmm. Um, which we know to be completely wrong because there are still people alive today in Western Sydney that trace their lineage back to Yaramundi via Maria Locke. Yeah. 
yeah okay um, yeah i'm glad we were able to come back around to that as well because that was we talked briefly about that uh, monument uh, in the last episode Sadly, many important Darug sites relating to both pre-white settlement times and more recent sites like the Native Institute and the Land Grant are in private hands. And as with so many Aboriginal sites across Australia, many are neglected, hidden, inaccessible on private property or have been destroyed entirely. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I'm just about done, but I would like to uh, briefly stop on places in Western Sydney that contemporary places that bear connection to Yaramundi's family. Yeah. Uh, some of these we've covered in the last couple of episodes, but I'll do them again. So the most obvious is Yaramundi, the suburb, which runs along the Western bank of Jarabin, along what we would refer to Alistair as the missing link between Penrith and Richmond. Yes. There's a large park there, I think, is there? There, there is. Yep. So the New South Wales Geographical Names Board says that the suburb's name derived from an Aboriginal healer, Yalamindi, who operated on one of Governor Phillips' guides who was suffering pain. Mm-hmm. So that's a reference to the story we, we discussed. Mm-hmm. The first place that was officially named for Yaramundi was Yaramundi Lagoon in 1969. And that's not too far from Yaramundi Reserve, which is where the Gross joins the uh, Nepean at the start of the Hawkesbury. We still haven't seen it, but the plan is to go for another rafting trip to get there. (laughs) Yes. And some Darug people, and this was mentioned in the Radio National podcast I mentioned, think that the ongoing association between Yaramundi and that lagoon might indicate that it's his birthing place. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, we also have Yellowmundi Regional Park, which is a national park or on site inside Yaramundi, the suburb. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, I tried to find out like why the park's named that or or anything because I feel like Yellowmundi is what Tench calls it, but um, Yaramundi seems to be the more broadly uh, accepted contemporary spelling. Yeah. And that led me into the park's plan of management, which states that the park's name recognises the Aboriginal cultural significance of the area Yellow Mundi, also spelt Yaramundi, was a clever man and a leader of the Darug people in the early days of European settlement. Yeah, okay, so they've just gone for a different spelling um, from the time. This yeah. is often the case, right? You just have to have attempts to phonetically transcribe Aboriginal words and they're going to get different, uh, different letters used to try to do that phonetic yeah. transcription. And in the early 1980s, the suburb containing the Colby and Narragingi land grant was named for Colby and nearby Dean Park, which also dates to the 1980s, features a Yaramundi drive. But I couldn't find any places named for Maria, maybe mm-hmm. because her name's Maria Locke. It would be awfully hard to, <laughs> to <laughs> identify whether they were specifically yeah. named after her or the mother of Jesus. <laughs> yeah, yes. So that's the end of the story of Yaramundi's family, Alistair. There's obviously plenty more people in the family, but you have to draw the line somewhere. And I chose to talk about these three. Yeah, yeah. Because as you said, that uh, Maria had 10 children, nine who survived for at least a very long time. So, and and then their descendants, there's going to be, there's going to be a lot of people involved in this broader family. Yeah. And plenty of people publicly identify as being part of that family. So it's not like super hard to track down contemporary people that um, yeah. are connected to the the Locke slash Yaramundi family. 
Yeah, yeah, wow. And who can then trace their family back very, very quickly and fairly easily to first encounters between Aboriginal people and uh, colonial ex- explorers, I guess, uh, in, in what contention and that first account on the, on the river. Yeah. But I do have an unrelated aside for you, mm. if, you <laughs> if you'll indulge me. Why not? You may recall some years ago pestering me to do a William Buckley episode. Yeah, yeah, because of the phrase Buckley's chance, yeah. Yes. So, I think at the time I agreed that it would make a terrific story from Sydney, except for the fact that it has almost (laughs) nothing to do with Sydney or even New South Wales. But now I know that that's your favourite kind of story to do on this podcast. Excuse you. (laughs) But I thought I would inform you that the good news is that Jenny from the Australian Histories podcast has recently wrapped up a three-episode series on William Buckley. Ah, cool. Nice. So we can uh, link to that. Yes. So the Australian Histories podcast, as you may know, covers similar ground to ours, has a a wide range of topics. And I thought we'd just mention a couple of episodes of theirs that uh, might be of interest to people who like our podcast. There's a four-parter that I haven't listened to about Bly and the Rum Rebellion, which might touch on some of your rum hospital ground. Mm -hmm. There's an episode on the Sydney Harbour Bridge, which we haven't covered, but I noticed that on Instagram we've posted two photos, (laughs) two separate photos of it under construction. (laughs) To show that our episodes are under construction. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and Jenny also did an episode on the Sydney Cove ship and Preservation Island, which is a story I covered last season. Oh, cool. And uh, um, Buckley's Buckley's Chance, the story of uh, William Buckley, he leaves the um, colonial settlements and then lives with Aboriginal people for many years. Is that right? Yeah, he escapes. He's a convict in, in what is now Melbourne and escapes and lives amongst the um, Aboriginal people of the area for 30 years yeah, well. before basically like turning himself in or whatever you want to call it. But yeah, then he goes back to living in Hobart for the rest of his days, sort of destitute, I think. Yeah, it sounds like an interesting story. It is an interesting story. Um, I've read a good book on it, um, but if you're more podcast-minded, then Australian History's podcast is the one to find out more about Buckley. And should you listen to episode 60 of that podcast about convict escapee Alexander Pierce, you might recognise a couple of familiar voices at the end. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, we very kindly got to do a um, a promotion of our podcast over there. But that's not actually my aside, Alistair. That's just <laughs> what was that then? <laughs> that's a lead into my aside. My aside is another story from Victoria that I would love to tell, but isn't within our remit. So I thought okay. I'd just sneak it in here. <laughs> Why not? Let's hear it. <laughs> so an Australian icon that you haven't heard of is a man called Thomas Austin. Yeah, definitely have not heard of him. Okay, so he's a, he's a classic Australian colonial story. He's an Englishman. He settled on some prime land just west of Geelong in the 1830s, which is the very earliest days of the colony at Port Phillip. Mm-hmm. And aside from running sheep on 29,000 generously donated acres of prime land and being obscenely wealthy, mm-hmm. he was also a notable member of the Acclimatisation Society of Victoria. Okay, I assume this is a sinister form of acclimatization. Uh, 
not he didn't know it was, but it turned out that it was. Yeah. So he introduced hares, blackbirds, and thrushes from Europe to Australia. Okay. And famously, in 1859, he introduced 24 breeding rabbits onto his estate for hunting parties. Brilliant. In 2022, genomic testing confirmed that the entire feral rabbit population of Australia are descended Ooh. from those first 24 introduced by Thomas Austin. Mate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's damning. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, well, well. Fascinating science, but uh, actually, I, I really, really enjoyed the episode, Jed, uh, aside from the aside. <laughs> That was a really, a really great way of, um, I think, tying together what we'd been talking about in, in the previous two episodes and really showing the significance of this early history that we, were, that we talk about, which sometimes feels almost it's hard to find the exact connections with the modern day. But I really mm. like the way that you were able to pull through through the 19th century and then through the 20th century up to what's happening now with this single location, but then more broadly, what the the Darug people from the first encounters to uh, policy today. Oh, thanks. I'm really glad you liked it. It felt like a little bit of a messy one because there's so many elements I sort of like just skim over that could easily be their whole own episode, although I suspect that's always the case. But um, as I tend to, using place as a way to tie disparate stories together and tell some sort of cohesive um, narrative is, is my style. Yeah. I, I found it really interesting. It started with the land grant for me, obviously. Yeah. And then I realised that all these people are connected together and, and the Native Institute and the Hawkesbury Nepean Frontier Wars and a bunch of other random things like the Cox's Road got in there. He was <laughs> Cox and Colby. Who yeah. met up on the uh, on the road construction project ended up being partners in the um, in the frontier wars, which sort of kicked off the connection to place that we have in a suburb named after him, Colby. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it's hard to tell Aboriginal stories on this podcast for a lot of reasons. I mean, we're not Indigenous, and you want to treat the subject well, um, and that's hard to do. The stories are tragic and painful still to this day the sources are really hard to work with because they're very lacking and very unreliable um so there's a lot of things that make it i think hard to do but i'm really glad uh we're at least giving it a crack because it's better to i guess try to address it than than completely ignore it and i think you uh, did a good job today i enjoyed enjoyed listening to it so thank you thanks man and i hope everyone's really enjoyed our little delve into stories about Jarabin. I think that is our last one of those. Yes. In our next episode, Jed, uh, we will be still uh, focusing on uh, an Aboriginal figure of significance in the early part of the colony, uh, but we will not be focusing on Jarabin and this area. All right, Jed, every good clue for you uh, begins with a rail line. And Mm. in this case, uh, it's in the UK, the controversial and uh, large HS2 line that I believe is currently under construction still. Mm -hmm. You would know it well. High-speed rail line uh, north from London to the Midlands, the north, and possibly with connections to Scotland. Yes. Wildly over budget. (laughs) Politically dynamite. (laughs) 
Ah, yes. And in the digging and construction, they had to move through an old cemetery where they uncovered the grave of a man who died in relative ignominy and unknown, but is now probably one of the most famous uh, and well-known figures in Australian history. Oh, wow. Wow. Uh, if you, you might know who this is. Now, uh, this, this man, I think is an interesting case of how we can rethink our history and emphasize certain aspects more than they were at the time. And another man, uh, is buried in complete unknown under a golf course in Eastern Sydney. Uh, and his story is possibly yet to be completely revived. And we will be focusing on his and the connection between these two uh, men who were laid in graves far less uh, well-known statuses than they have today. Fascinating. I feel like a common end to end up in a in a ignominious grave for many people who had some sort of impressive life or in, or life that we know a lot about. I don't know who these people are. I was thinking Ben along because he f- so famously went to England, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the whole second half of the clue was <laughs> led me back into the unknown. <laughs> well, I look forward to addressing it in our next episode. Uh, hopefully uh, you'll enjoy that one too. But uh, thanks for today and uh, we'll see you in two weeks time. Yes. Thanks, Alistair. And thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us at storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. And you can also connect with us on Facebook and Instagram at Stories from Sydney. See you next time.